Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Morag Griffin, consultant hematologist and honorary senior lecturer at Leeds University Teaching Hospitals here in the UK. After completing her bachelor's degree in cellular and molecular biology, Morag obtained her medical degrees from the same institution, the University of Dundee in Scotland, Fine Place. She then completed her hematology training in Sheffield with a concurrent master's degree in medical leadership. She's worked on several clinical trials and has published extensively. Outside of work, Morag enjoys climbing and usually likes to include a European holiday each year, including this sport. And the good doctor also enjoys time in her garden growing vegetables. It strikes me there could not be two more diverse uh, hobbies. Anyway, I can't wait to scale the dizzying heights of hematology. So welcome to the EMJ podcast, Dr. Morag Griffin. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. So I'm always intrigued by origin stories. I love knowing what people took them to the peak of their career. I'm going to stop doing these stupid illusions, I promise you. So what inspired you to pursue a medical career and what took you into hematology? Well, I was always interested in science uh, at school and working out different causes of pathology and medicine seemed a natural choice. Um, and through my university, I developed an interest in hematology, particularly the ability to meet patients when they presented, diagnose them and look at their blood films, bone marrow results and then treat them. The relationship as well that you develop with patients over the years, seeing them through a diagnostic journey, treatment journey and then um, follow up, long term follow up uh, is a privilege. So I mentioned in my introduction that you completed a master's degree in medical leadership. What led you to do that and how's it helped you throughout your career? I always had an interest in processes and change management and through my haematology training I started to look at different aspects of the training program, different rotations and I started leading on the rotor and development of the trainees. This took me into an interest in the Royal College of Physicians uh, Masters in Medical Leadership, which included different modules, including change management, organisational change, leading and developing people and different research methods with a dissertation as well. This has led on to throughout my career, and particularly as I lead the PNH National Service um, in Leeds, jointly with one of my colleagues, um, to support staff and training, but also to interact with medical management uh, for service development and developing a better service for all of our patients. And I think it's essential that uh, physicians and NHS management have a good understanding of how each other works and to work collaboratively uh, to develop services. So let's get into the meat of this. Uh, Your joint paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH, service lead, providing care to patients with this disease. Morag, assume I know nothing, which is a safe assumption. Take us through this rare condition, how it manifests, who gets it, and how you treat it. The floor's yours. Uh, thank you very much. So PNH uh, is a rare, very rare, ultra-rare condition uh, characterised by a process of intravascular hemolysis and thrombosis. It's life-threatening and patients often present either with anemia or they'll complain of significant lethargy, red or black urine or haemoglobinuria, difficulty swallowing such as dysphagia, abdominal pain or a life-threatening thrombosis or a less life-threatening thrombosis, but a DVT or a pulmonary embolus. 
The process of PNH is caused by an acquired somatic mutation in the PIGA gene, so it's not an inherited disorder, it's an acquired disorder. And patients uh, can present mainly in their 30s, but we have patients as young as 7, and patients presenting into their 90s as well. Patients can take some time to diagnose. We spend quite a lot of time um, teaching and, and educating about PNH as patients can present to different specialties, uh, particularly if they've got haemoglobinuria, they might present to urology, they might present to gastroenterology with abdominal pain, etc. The problem with having a somatic mutation in your pig A gene is that you don't uh, produce CD55 and CD59, particularly on red cells. And these are negative controllers of the complement system. So your complement system is primed to react when you encounter an antigen or an infectious organism to activate the process of membrane attack complex formation and destroy that microbe. The lack of CD55 and CD59 means that your complement system is permanently switched on and therefore rather than um, primed to destroy um, infectious agents or dead and dying cells, um, it activates the membrane attack complex formation and destroys your own red blood cells with the process of intravascular hemolysis which gives rise to various symptoms that I've mentioned. This, it, the symptoms arise mainly due to the loss of smooth muscle relaxation because you release free hemoglobin into your circulation which results in nitric oxide scavenging and a loss of smooth muscle relaxation, giving you abdominal pain, dysphagia, erectile dysfunction, and the release of free hemoglobin, the effects on the kidneys and the process of hemoglobinuria. Patients can present um, with a variety of symptoms, but they can also present with an overlapping condition of aplastic anemia, as 40 to 60% of patients with aplastic anemia have some degree of PNH, ranging from 1% up to 100%. Within the PNH service, we see a variety, we see all patients with any level of PNH clone. Um, indications for treatment for patients with PNH uh, are those with life-threatening thrombosis, and it's essential that they start treatment within 24 hours to manage the current thrombosis and decrease risk of further propagation of thrombosis. And this, in particular, can be um, venous or arterial thrombosis. And so we also have patients presenting with cardiac events and strokes which, as you can imagine, results in significant comorbidity potentially as well. Other indications include symptomatic hemolytic PNH, so in patients that are anemic with a high LDH, um, and also those patients who are pregnant with a PNH clone of over 20% with no other indications. We start those ladies on treatment uh, at the end of their first trimester to support their pregnancy and to outcome. Treatment uh, currently is with ravaluzumab, which is a C5 inhibitor, which blocks uh, the terminal complement pathway, stopping the membrane attack complex um, formation and essentially turning off the process of intravascular hemolysis. This has been life-saving for patients. The treatment has been available since 2007 in the UK, Europe and the US, and initially was with ekiluzumab, which was an IV treatment every two weeks once patients had been, received their loading doses. There's a clear um, near normalization of life expectancy now um, for patients who have treatment available to them, um, which I must emphasize is only in 15% of countries worldwide. And therefore, we're in a position to try and um, look at different modalities of treatment for patients. Um, and other treatments are now available in the UK, such as Pegcetiquiplan, which is a proximal complement inhibitor binding at C3 in the complement cascade. 
Indications for more proximal complement inhibitors are those patients who have had extravascular hemolysis um, developed on a C5 inhibitor. Extravascular hemolysis is caused by um, being on a C5 inhibitor, which results in C3 opsonization of red cells and a shortened lifespan. Patients uh, can have a high reticulocyte count, be anemic, um, and have um, symptoms such as lethargy and feel that they can't complete full and um, family life and, and work activities. And so th this will be an indication for Exetico plan. As, as we are one of the largest services uh, for PNH in the world, we also have a large number of clinical trials looking at different complement inhibitors, but also looking at various other research uh, into um, earlier disease and the processes uh, around presenting uh, treatment responses. Uh, and we have a PhD program as well. So thanks for that very, very thorough explanation. I, I have to be completely honest with you. Um, this is one of those conditions I've heard of it. I knew nothing about it. So I feel I've, like I've had a three-year crash course. Uh, <laughs> so and thanks. You recently published an article entitled Biomarkers and Laboratory Assessments for Monitoring the Treatment of Patients with PNH, Differences Between Terminal and Proximal Complement Inhibition. Can you tell us about the results of this work? Uh, absolutely, Jonathan. I think uh, I'd start off by saying uh, it's important for all biomarkers to be assessed in patients, not only at the beginning of their diagnostic uh, journey, but also throughout treatment. For PNH, uh, there's various markers which are essential to check for um, diagnostic purposes for patients um, and also monitoring purposes. And so we're very reliant on the lactate dehydrogenase or LDH. For patients with hemolytic anemia, the LDH is usually very high at diagnosis, although not all patients have a high LDH. You can have uh, mainly a type 2 uh, level PNH with a type 2 red cell clone, and patients don't tend to have such a high LDH. This is a marker of red cell turnover, and in particular, those with a higher LDH tend to be more anemic, uh, and it's a marker used for diagnosis, and it's one of the blood tests that you have to ask for. Um, so if you've got a patient with hemolytic anemia, you should always, or even a patient with mild cytopenias or unusual thrombosis, always ask for an LDH because it will be indicative of doing further diagnostic testing. We also use LDH for a marker of disease control, particularly uh, when you've started on complement inhibition and you've got um, aiming for a target of an LDH of less than 1.5 times the upper limit of normal to guide the fact that patients have responded very well to treatment and have their process of intravascular hemolysis and therefore their life-threatening element of the PNH um, controlled and switched off. And this is applicable both to the proximal and the terminal complement inhibitors. Other markers which you would expect as any haematologist to be checking, things like haemoglobin, uh, have they stabilised their haemoglobin, are they needing blood transfusions, um, and uh, also haptoglobin, which scavenges um, free haemoglobin release, uh, and so patients with intravascular hemolysis have a low haptoglobin, so it's quite a useful diagnostic uh, blood test, but I must say it doesn't tend to represent response to treatment quite as well. Obviously, we check patients um, have a PNH clone, which is a diagnostic flow cytometry test uh, using flare. It's a relatively straightforward test to do, and if it's positive, then you've clearly got a diagnosis for the patient, um, which can be life-changing, and therefore it's an essential test to do. Within that paper, there's a table three, which is a very useful guide uh, to the differences between intravascular and extravascular hemolysis and biomarkers testing within that. 
For patients with extravascular hemolysis, uh, they tend to have a very well-controlled um, LDH, um, but they'll have a high reticulocyte count, which is reflecting the turnover of their red blood cells and the, the attempt of the bone marrow to compensate for the level of anemia that they are experiencing with C3 opsonization and um, early red cell removal by the spleen and the liver. I would emphasize that we've already mentioned aplastic anemia and patients uh, can have overlapping disease. And so if you've got overlapping disease with aplastic anemia, the reticulocyte count may not be quite such a useful guide for those patients when you're trying to assess extravascular hemolysis. But you can look at the red cell PNH clone and you may well find that the red cell clone is lower than the white cell clone um, due to increased turnover of the PNH red cells. So you just mentioned aplastic anemia, and I know this is an interest of yours. Same as for PNH. Give us, um, you know, some sort of soup to nuts in, in a concise form and maybe dig down into some of the recent advances. So aplastic anemia is another rare disorder, and as I've mentioned, does overlap with PNH, with 40 to 60% of people with aplastic anemia having a PNH clone, and therefore it makes sense for the majority of PNH physicians to also treat aplastic anemia. It's a very rare bone marrow failure disorder, which affects around two patients per million of the population with incidence. And the majority of patients will present with either symptoms of anemia, um, symptoms of bleeding or symptoms of infection. Um, this is due to bone marrow dysfunction. It's diagnosed by a bone marrow test. Um, and essentially, the bone marrow is emptier than it should be. It's caused by overactivity of the immune system and T-cell dysregulation uh, and in a small number of patients can be caused by hepatitis A, uh, various viral infections or vaccinations, um, but for the majority of patients that present, it's idiopathic. It affects the um, children and adults. There's usually a bimodal distribution with patients presenting between 15 and 25 and then over 60. Um, and particularly for children, there is a risk of it being an inherited disorder, such as Fanconi anemia, Schottman-Diamond syndrome, um, or other um, telomeropathies. Um, and that can be a higher proportion in children. Um, but we do pick up up to about 10% of adults that also have an inherited um, bone marrow failure disorder. And therefore, we would advise checking, particularly for patients below the age of 50, for Fanconi anemia and checking their telomeres. Um, aplastic anemia is um, diagnosed based on blood counts and cellularity on the bone marrow and um, diagnostic criteria range from very severe aplastic anemia where your neutrophil count is less than 0.2, your um, reticulocytes are less than 60, your platelets are less than 20 and your cellularity of your bone marrow is less than 30%. Um, you can then be diagnosed with severe, moderate or um, non-moderate aplastic anemia. Treatment varies depending on the severity of your anemia, uh, aplastic anemia, if you've got um, severe or very severe aplastic anemia, and you have a, you're suitable for a bone marrow transplant and you have a matched um, sibling donor, you would go ahead and have a stem cell transplant. For those without a matched sibling donor um, or aren't fit for a transplant, we would treat patients with ATG and cyclosporin, which is immunosuppression. Moderate aplastic anemia, which is transfusion dependent, is also treated with ATG and cyclosporin. Moderate aplastic anemia, which is not transfusion dependent, and anything with mild cytopenias, is usually treated with oral outpatient treatment options. You mentioned recent advances. Uh, newer treatments include the combination of our trombopag with ATG and cyclosporin um, from the RACE trial, uh, which, is a multi which was a multinational European study which we participated in. With patients randomized to L-trombopag, ATG, and 
cyclosporine having a shorter duration of neutropenia and a quicker response rate um, to treatment compared to those with ATG and cyclosporine alone. Although I would emphasize that um, at the moment, the addition of Valtrombopag into the treatment regime is very country dependent. Managing older patients with aplastic anemia can be a little more challenging, um, particularly um, those with comorbidities, although I would emphasize that there's no age limit for treatment with ATG. And it's important to assess the physical fitness of patients rather than going on their biological age alone. But if patients are not um, suitable for ATG, which is quite an intensive inpatient treatment option, we would manage them with all outpatient treatment options, mainly starting with cyclosporin, but also to include anabolic steroids um, or L-trombopag where available. So you're a member of the International PNH Interest Group and the Severe Aplastic Anemia Working Party. Although most of our audience are medical practitioners, some are not. Can you please explain how international collaboration works and is in fact critical, especially for the diseases we're talking about, rare diseases or ultra-rare diseases, I believe you call PNH? Indeed we do. It is an ultra-rare disease and I think it's essential um, that there's international collaboration. Um, the International PNH Interest Group has over 600 members um, and links in various um, physicians and, and patients as well with an interest in uh, PNH. The Hallmark trials which were done in 2003-2004 um, were a multinational trial um, to try and address treatment for PNH, uh, which it was very challenging and difficult, particularly due to the rarity of the disease, but also um, the level of interest in doing clinical trials within the rare disease field. So more, um, collaboration is, is essential, but also um, diagnostic collaboration, basic bench to um, research, uh, usually requires collaboration around the world. But not only that, but for patients that um, we're struggling with as physicians or um, we may well have a, an anonymized discussion um, with, with colleagues as to whether they've had a similar experience, what they would suggest um, to get more of a wider MDT approach. And certainly we also receive various email inquiries asking for advice throughout the week, um, maybe one or two emails a week from various colleagues. And I think you wouldn't be able to do research uh, in an ultra-rare disease uh, without international collaboration. And we've just had the first international PNH um, conference as well uh, in Harrogate, uh, which was a well-attended, covering a range of presentations from diagnosis to uh, laboratory research to different treatment options for patients. I'm also a member of the Severe Aplastic Anemia Working Party uh, through the EBMT, which is uh, also a collaborative work of clinicians interested in aplastic anemia. And again, to try and um, to consolidate efforts around Europe and exchange scientific ideas um, to forward development for patients. But I would also emphasize that it's essential that patients um, are also involved in planning and, and, and research and, and our patient groups are um, very well connected internationally as well. Uh, between different countries. Thanks for that. You know, during the pandemic, there was a great deal of conversations with my pals in, in intensive care and such like, talking about international collaborations and how critical the exchange of information is. And I guess this is a timely question, follows on from that, uh, given the COVID-19 pandemic. And I presume valid concerns the patients you care for might have had about vaccines. One of your recent papers analyzed vaccination responses in patients with aplastic anemia 
and paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. How is vaccination response affected by these diseases? And I believe you you recently presented an abstract on this at EBMT. Thank you. And um, certainly when the COVID-19 pandemic started, uh, there was significant concern among all pa- haematology and patients in um, irrespective of disease. They're a vulnerable group of patients. A lot of them have had immunosuppressive treatment or chemotherapy. Um, and they were initially uh, advised to be in the group of patients that were shielding. For patients with aplastic anemia, there was concerns about the vaccine either causing or um, developing a relapse of aplastic anemia, as there is various case reports uh, for all vaccines causing or um, developing a relapse of aplastic anemia. And uh, the COVID-19 vaccine was um, an entirely new developed vaccine. And patients were excluded from clinical trials initially. But also, would patients have a response to the vaccination? They're already immunosuppressed, a lot of them. Um, We didn't know if they would respond to the vaccine. For those um, patients with PNH, PNH is a prothrombotic condition um, and a hemolytic condition, and we already vaccinate our patients from intracocal infection uh, due to the use of C5 inhibition, as you need C5 to mount an immune response to meningitis. So we were concerned at the risk of thrombosis um, or breakthrough hemolysis as well. So we undertook a vaccine study led by our PhD student, Dr. Pike, um, with healthy volunteers, uh, mainly hospital and lab staff as as controls, um, and patients provided samples, a small number pre-vaccine, but mainly post-first vaccine, post-second vaccine, and subsequent vaccines after that. This included patients with aplastic anemia and PNH. And the response rates following the second vaccine for COVID um, were comparable to that of healthy volunteers. There was a smaller response post-first vaccine, but once patients had received their second vaccine, the majority achieved an antibody level similar to that of healthy volunteers. And so we were able to address concerns about response to vaccination particularly for those patients on immune suppression, there was no difference for those who were on a calcineurin inhibitor such as cyclosporin compared to the healthy volunteer population. For for those with PNH, there was a small number of patients who had um, breakthrough hemolysis, and so um, we advised patients to be vaccinated as near as possible after their complement inhibitor dose if they're on treatment. In terms of concerns about uh, relapse post-vaccination for aplastic anemia, uh, we recently uh, presented an abstract to EBMT of a large cohort of patients within Europe, an observational study, which showed that there was a small number of patients who had uh, aplastic anemia relapse post-vaccination, but this was in conjunction with withdrawal of immunosuppression. There was no clear link um, between the vaccination and relapse of aplastic anemia um, without a withdrawal of immunosuppression. And so again, for patients who were on immunosuppression compared to those that were not, there was no um, differences in outcome post-vaccination. And more importantly, I would emphasize there was no deaths from COVID-19 in the patient population um, in our EBMT abstract um, post-vaccination. So the vaccine, um, both with Dr. Pike's um, study and with the observational study with EBMT, shows that the COVID-19 vaccine is protective for patients. Patients have an an appropriate immune response. um, And therefore, we would continue to encourage all of our patients with aplastic anemia and PNH to um, undertake vaccination. Yeah, that seemed to be a recurring theme amongst all the specialists that I spoke to about this topic, that the risks of not being vaccinated outweighed the benefits, uh, if you will. So you've got a special interest in histiocytic disease. 
can you please explain what this disease involves? I have to tell you, when I speak to people like you, I feel like such an idiot. Uh, I definitely did go to medical school and I definitely practiced medicine for many, many years. But my goodness, it just seems like there's so much I don't know. So please educate me. There's lots I don't know, Jonathan, so I'll stick to hematology. Um, Histiocytic disease is another group of very rare diseases uh, which um, occur when there's an overproduction of uh, histiocytes, um, which you can then accumulate in various organs um, and cause um, and damage and symptoms. So um, histiocytic disease is an umbrella term which is, includes Langerhans cell histiocytosis, Erdan Chester, um, Rossi-Dorfman disease and, and, and various other of histiocytic subtypes. Uh, patients can either have a single site disease or they can uh, um, have multi multi-system disease the majority of adults that we see do have multi-system disease and it can infect particularly um, the long bones and um, pituitary involvement is very common and um, patients have often been under an endocrinologist for several years um, before presenting with more florid uh, systemic disease so they may well have diabetes insipidus um, various other low production of hormones and testosterone issues um, and other common symptoms include skin rashes, um, headaches um, and some patients have cardiac involvement as well. Uh, paediatric and um, adult treatment um, it's quite different. Um, children um, can present at any age um, from babies um, onwards um, and they usually are treated on a standardized um, chemotherapy protocol um, over several years. Uh, whereas in adults, uh, we tend to use uh, first-line methotrexate, uh, which is an outpatient-based oral chemotherapy, um, which patients respond to usually quite well. Targeted treatments um, in particular are now um, being developed, um, mainly coming over from melanoma, as it's quite common for patients to have a, to have a BRAF mutation. And so therefore, if um, you translate from the melan patients with melanoma who have a BRAF mutation, um, using targeted BRAF inhibitors can be um, effective, particularly for those with life-threatening disease such as CNS or cardiac involvement. For those without a BRAF mutation, you can use a targeted MEK inhibitor. This is a very rare disease and there is a histiocytic uh, active research group within the UK for, um, with patient involvement as well. So what future research in haematology excites MORAG and what areas merit more focus? So I think there's always ongoing research, uh, but I think it's important that we remember that research needs to be uh, essentially patient focused uh, and we need to continue our basic research for further understanding of underlying pathology and disease, particularly uh, for those those patients uh, with PNH. Um, why did they get PNH in the first place? And if you look into the pig mutations, actually not everybody has a pig A mutation. Various people have different pig mutations uh, and they can present with different symptoms depending on their pig mutation. Also, uh, for patients, why do different patients respond to different treatment options? Um, and can you predict which treatment option will be better for patients? We're, we've gone from being having one treatment available in 2007, which has is, is been life-saving for those where, where it's available, um, to a variety of different treatment options. And so it would be very um, helpful to be able to predict which patients are going to respond to which treatment. 
aplastic anemia. I think uh, basic research um, in terms of what causes aplastic anemia and the disease mechanisms behind it is still quite a lot of unknowns. Um, but also even the basics of getting an aplastic anemia registry um, so that we can um, get some wider um, epidemiological data um, and treatment response data. My interest always um, is within clinical trials as well um, and promoting clinical trial development um, in rare diseases, which is often very difficult, um, is, is essential for international collaboration. For patients with histiocytic disease, uh, for adults, uh, there's often a, a lack of availability for patients um, entering clinical trials, but also going back to the basic research and, and laboratory and, and Factoring in targeted treatment pathways, uh, particularly as uh, wider treatments become available for more common diseases such as uh, CLL and lymphoma, can we translate these options for patients uh, with histiocytic disease as well? We must remember that, that patients and patient involvement within clinical trials um, and basic research is, is essential and having their input um, into what is important to, to them um, rather than making an assumption um, is, is very important and, and asking patients what they're interested in, what they wish to improve um, and it may not be something that you've necessarily thought of either. So finally a question I ask all of my guests. If you were granted three wishes for the future of haematology and the conditions you treat, the rare conditions you treat, what would those three wishes be? I think I've already alluded to it, but um, in particular, treatment for PNH is only available in about 15% of the countries worldwide. And therefore, uh, I would wish that it was more equitable um, and I think as an international PNH community particularly through IPIG um, we should try and um, make this possible. It's always uh, would be good to be able to cure PNH so patients don't need uh, treatments um, and can get on with their daily lives although we obviously have made great strides in trying to uh, minimize medical involvement with pa for patients. Um, and the third one, I think, would 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 mainly be to to clinicians and physicians um, that we continue to uh, educate and and develop young physicians uh, to go into the field of haematology, but not only haematology, but but to to have a good understanding of the basic research and clinical research, and to take all opportunities um, that are offered to them, uh, so they can have a fulfilling career. Uh, those are very well thought out and, and noble responses. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Morag Griffin for being with us today and sharing her considerable knowledge and commitment with us. Morag, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So, folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode and like us on social media. Check out the archives and join us next week for the next episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.